morning, everybody. We're going to pick up in the book of Deuteronomy together in Deuteronomy class, which is perhaps not real surprising to you. You expected that. I do have a, a handout that's in the, the back of the room back there where Joey is sitting on that chair back there. You can grab a handout there that gives you a little outline of this section that we're going to be getting into here. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we begin a section where Moses is giving an exposition of the Ten Commandments or Ten Words, which is what you see in the outline that I gave you where you can see where he moves from the first commandment to the second one to the third one to see that these aren't just random laws that he gets into all of all of a sudden but he's actually working through his sermon outline point by point and in order i am going to try to get chapters 12 through 16 but i'm doubtful of myself that i'll get that far but we're gonna give it a try i have uh, titled this lesson how to live out loving god what has happened here in the text is we've, we've moved from you know, general stipulations within God's covenant to specific stipulations. The general thing being the Shema, it's to, you're to love God with you know, everything that you are and that surrounds you. But then the question is, well, what, is, what does that look like? How do you live that out? So you get you know, the main thing that your life is to be about, which is, loving God, but how was Israel to live out the specifics of that? Well, that's what we begin to get here in chapter 12. So there's a movement from a commandment to love God to instruction on this is how you love God. It's moving from learning the commandment to living out the commandments. And sometimes this, is, this section is referred to as case law. The idea is that it's providing a paradigm in which the leaders of Israel were to, to rule. And the aim was that they were to, to live out the spirit of the law rather than the letter. Because if it came to the letter, they wouldn't have everything that they needed for every situation. But they're giving these cases, which would give them enough information to make a decision on other things according to the spirit of the law in the future. And these laws are very much theological because laws teach a value system to a society. And these laws, as we've discussed, they're teaching things about the character of God, but then the character of God being displayed and how his chosen nation would live. So these laws aren't a bunch of random statements, but instead they correspond to the 10 words, which we've talked about how those respond to creation. They're ultimately founded in creation. And these 10 words being founded in creation have a range of applications and implications that look different in Israel during that time and different than how they would relate to the church so we're being given examples of what it looks like to live out the, I guess you could say, the logic of loving God. And while the applications and implications of that looked different for Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, the logic is still built into creation and therefore it still applies to us, though it might look different because we're under a different economy or administration as it's discussed in scripture so the application looks different but the logic remains the same so because of that that that's how you can be not under the law but still learn from it because the the logic is built into creation even though the application for us in the church age is different than that with israel so an example would be like uh, Israel wasn't to wear mixed fabrics. Now, Israel was not allowed to do that. Are you allowed to do that? 
yeah, you're allowed to, to wear mixed fabrics. But there was a logic built into it. And the, well, why, why were the, the, the priests to wear unmixed fabrics? Well, it was a, a teaching about purity. You had to be pure in how you dress and, and how you live and how you represent God as being part of the priesthood and displaying what he's like to the world. Well, how does that logic apply to us? Well, we dress in such a way that displays that uh, we, we understand this concept of purity. We want to have a, a display of that as a representation that our God is pure. And that can look different from culture to culture because they'll have different ideas on what purity looks like in terms of how, how you dress. And these laws have a particular impact on First Testament theology. So I'll talk about you know, Old Testament theology before New Testament. Uh, what is some of the impact that these laws are going to have uh, within the Old Testament under the Mosaic Covenant? Well, you see that they're going to come up as you keep reading the narrative of Scripture, like when you get to the kings. The, the, the kings are supposed to rule by this particular law. When they do, things go well. When they don't, things go bad. And the prophets show up and explain why it's bad. Uh, this maybe is most clear, or will be, when we get to Deuteronomy 17, and it talks about the things that the king was supposed to resist, which was multiplying gold for himself, or multiplying women for himself, or multiplying uh, his, his army. We have talked about this as the, the king's not supposed to multiply gold, gals, or giddy-up, which is like horses and military stuff, obviously. The impact that these laws have on New Testament theology is you, there's a continuation of the, the development of what God purposed at this time in history that further develops at the point in history in which we live and has implications for us today. You might think of in 1 Timothy 5.18 when Paul tell, he instructs Timothy in that you, know, you, you shouldn't muzzle out the ox. He's like, well, that, you know, that's from the Old Testament. Well, Paul's Bible was only, the, they didn't call it the Old Testament. It was just the Bible. It was the scriptures. And he's bringing up that God's not just concerned about oxen who need food if they're going to be able to, to labor, and that's the wages that you give the ox. You, you give it some grain so that it can eat and have strength and continue to do its work. He says, but the logic is that connects into those who labor in the word and teaching. Uh, there has to be the, uh, wages for that guy so that he can eat and keep doing his, his work. He said, the same logic continues even though you're not under the law, which is also why you can eat pork at the fellowship meal today. Because, you know, the purpose of that and God teaching particular things about clean and unclean to, to, to Israel, there's a development in which now he's brought, you know, Gentiles into the priesthood of making Christ known to the world, and nobody has to say that they're unclean and that they can't be a part of it, which is why, you know, you remember Peter said, you know, Lord, I'll eat pork when pigs fly. So he had a dream where it happened twice. He saw flying sheets of bacon. So what's being given here, there's, a, there's an ethical paradigm. You could think of it like that. You're getting a, a theology of ethics. You're getting a logic of how things work in God's creation. And though you don't practice it exactly the same way, you're to use the same sort of reasoning. So the outline that I gave you, you'll see at the top of it, it says specific stipulations. This is chapter 12 to 26, 19. And you'll see what I laid out there is these breaks in which Moses is addressing particular commandments, and we're going to work through it like that. But I know that this sort of thing isn't written in the subtitles in your Bible, 
So I wrote it out for you, and you could write it in the margin or something like that, or you know, check your neighbor's Bible, and if they haven't wrote those in, you could love your neighbor and take their Bible and write them in for them. But the main point that I also gave you there of this section is here is the theology and how to live it out. You know, these, this law instruction was theological, and you know, God was teaching his servant nation, this is how you're to, to live it out. And as we break into this section, we're going to see that what God is doing is you know, reminding them that he deserves worship, but he also defines it. He's going to say, you know, what does it look like to have only one God? What does it look like to not have any idols? What does it look like to not take his name in vain? You know, what does it look like to keep the Sabbath? Well, God deserves this worship because he is the creator and redeemer. You know, he had brought them out of Egypt. Uh, they owe honor to him. But God also defines worship because, again, he is the creator and he's the redeemer. And graciously, God didn't, in giving the law, he didn't leave Israel guessing what would please him or displease them or say, well, you guys can just come up with whatever you want and worship however you want. But God taught them how to live for him day to day and absolutely everything from their eating to drinking to whatever they would do so they would know how to glorify him in absolutely every aspect of their lives. But they also didn't have to guess if they were in God's favor based on whether they were obeying these laws or not. Do you remember they, they were in relationship with God because of covenant. They didn't, become, they didn't come into relationship to him because of law obedience. They were in relationship by covenant, but now in that covenant, the law gives them how to live out that relationship. It's giving them the conduct of living in that covenant relationship. And also, as we've talked about, the, the law itself is revelation. It's revelation which is teaching, this is who the one true God is. This is what he's done for you. This is what he's like. This is how his salvation works, and this is how you live redemptively in everything that you do, which is maybe most clear to us in the slave laws. Why are these sort of ideas of redemption built in to debt and giving yourself to work for somebody to, to pay a debt, but there is a way to there was always a way to be released, but there was also this option in which the slave could love their master so much and refuse to leave that they just wanted to devote their life to him. And it's like either way, there's a, a picture of how God's redemption works in that, either that a slave is set free or a slave is choosing to say, I love my, my master so much I'm not leaving. And God wants to have both of those pictures of himself and his salvation and how those laws were to function within the society of Israel. But this revelation, as we've talked about, wasn't to be confused as being a vehicle for salvation, where they could uh, drive themselves to being saved by God by law-keeping. It's true that both redemption and law comes from God's grace, but they're not to be confused with one another. Now let's begin into chapter 12. I won't be reading through the whole text, but I'm going to point out key verses as we work through it this morning. And uh, as we do that, I'm going, to, I'm going to begin with praying for the Lord's help in this lesson as we continue our study. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this revelation of your character, of your salvation, of your logic, which you have built into creation pray that you would help us to rightly understand these things, to rightly learn from them, that you would help us to love you more and to be more skilled in living out that love for you, that you would use this lesson for our edification, that you would use it to equip us for ministry and the age in which we live. And we thank you that you are with us and that you do teach us and shepherd us and guide us. Amen. 
So beginning in chapter 12, verses 1 to 32, the first commandment was, as you remember, to have no other gods. Well, how does that tie into creation? Well, in creation, there is no other god. That's how you're to think about the world that you live in. This is a way to help Israel to understand this is how you live out the supremacy of God in your worship. You understand that there's one God. There's one in which you have absolute allegiance to. You remember that back in Deuteronomy 6, 5. You know, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God is one. And you're to be one with the one true God. He's absolutely unique. Therefore, Israel is to be absolutely committed to him alone without deviation. Therefore, they must destroy all false gods and all false places of worship. Well, why were they to destroy all of these things? Well, to display Yahweh is supreme. There isn't another. Therefore, we can't have anything that's being devoted to something else besides him. And it's echoed throughout this section over and over and over that there's going to be one place of worship. Now, why do you think that Israel's only going to have one place of worship? Because of how many gods they have. There's just one. One God, one place. You see this in 12.5. It says, but you shall seek Yahweh at the place which Yahweh your God will choose from all your tribes. Now that phrase there, the place which Yahweh your God will choose, that's a phrase that would be helpful to underline in your Bible because you'll see it repeated over and over. And the purpose of this place is to establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come. Which when you think forward in the Bible, what is the name of that place which God chooses? It starts with a J. Jerusalem, yeah. Jerusalem is that chosen place for his name to dwell. So you're developing and being given a theology of Jerusalem here at this point in in the Bible. And if you look at verse 8 with me, it says, You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Does that remind you of another book in the Bible that comes a little bit later? Yeah, with the judges. You can't define worship for yourself. You can't do whatever is right in your own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which Yahweh your God is giving you. Now you will cross the Jordan and live in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security. Why is it that they're ultimately going to end in being God's people and God's land under God's blessing and rest forever? Well, it's because of what God promised in the Noahic covenant that everything in creation ultimately has to have its culmination and consummation in God's rest, which these are the things that were lost in the beginning of creation, being God's people and God's land and his blessing and rest, which is exactly what God purposes to do in the Abrahamic covenant. Exactly the thing that he's going to restore is Land, seed, blessing. All of that stuff is going to be restored. But people aren't allowed to go about the thinking of that or the achievement of that in any way that is right in their own eyes. Man cannot enter into God's rest however he wants. He can't decide how to worship God or how God's plan is going to go forward. Uh, It's God alone who has established the plan, and it's God alone who brings the rest, which you see that in him saying, I will do this. I'm going to bring you into resting in the land. 
Well, if they're not to do what is right in their eyes, then how are they to think about this? If you look in chapter 12 and verse 26, pick up there. It says, only your holy things, which you may have, and your votive offerings you shall take, and go to the place which Yahweh chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of Yahweh your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of Yahweh your God, and you shall eat the flesh. Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, so that it may be well with you and your sons after you, for you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of Yahweh your God. So you see here, he's saying, don't do what's right in your eyes, but do instead what is good and right in my eyes in the place that I have chosen. This instructs our worship and reminding us that, you know, our aim is to please him. Our aim is to please the one who has redeemed us. And we worship him in spirit and truth, which you see even here in the building of the tabernacle and the such. You remember there were some men in, the spirit was in them, which gave them the desire and the skill to carry out the construction and the performing of everything surrounding the tabernacle worship, but it was according to truth. It was according to what God told them to do. And we still worship in that way. You know this phrase from John chapter 4 when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, worship is ultimately about worshiping God in spirit and truth. I think you have spirit with a capital S slash lowercase s because it's enlivened by the Holy Spirit, but it's also in a conforming of and a renewing of our spirit unto his. But we also worship in joy and fear. You know, God doesn't want, he, God doesn't love a grumpy giver. You get that idea? He loves a, a cheerful giver, which again, with the tabernacle worship, it was who were the people that came? It were all the people that, that were willing. You know, they wanted to contribute because they had understood God has been generous to us. And so we hold everything that he's given us with a loose hand and to give back and to gratitude and praise to him. But we also carry this out in fear because we know when we don't do it his way, people die. We get grave sights when people don't fear God and how they worship which thankfully that's not, you know, super common. You know, you don't have uh, Ananias and Sapphira events every month in the church. But when those things happen, you know, we look back at it and say, God is serious about holiness in his church and him being feared and us following his instruction. You know, we don't decide for ourselves how, how to worship in the church. We look at uh, what our Lord has commanded because Christ is the head of the church and he hasn't left us in the dark and what he wants us to be doing. Another thing we learn about worship here is that it, it's primarily corporate rather than individual. So when you see the, the worship as it's being carried out by the, these people with Israel, it's something that they're doing together. You know, they're not doing it you know, in their tents in private. Uh, None of them were a, a kingdom unto themselves, but they were a kingdom together. Uh, they weren't, you know, the private priest of their tent or home, but they were priests together in community and could only have this full picture that God wanted as a witness from them when they were worshiping together. And that's the same for us in the church. Like you as an individual are not the church, but us together collectively you know, are the church, which those yous that surround the church, as we've talked about, the yous are y'alls in your Bible. So, as you look at Deuteronomy 12, 32, the last verse there, he says, whatever I'm commanding you, you shall be careful to do and shall not add to nor take away from it. Uh, what do you think that phrase means that you shall not add to nor take away from it? Well, 
yeah, you do, you do what it says. You know, this doesn't have to do with whether you're writing new stuff in the Bible or uh, editing things out, but it, it has to do with rightly interpreting it and applying it. So he says, you're, you're not allowed to interpret these things differently. You can't reinterpret them. You can't redefine them. Uh, they, they mean what they mean and are to have the significance that God as the ultimate author has intended. So we're not allowed to reinterpret God's instruction, which the temptation for Israel was to, to syncretize you know, their, their Yahweh worship with Canaanite worship practices. It's like, well, we'll, have, we'll, com- we'll combine them because we like both. Uh, we're also not to combine God, the interpretation of God's word with worldly wisdom. Whether it come from uh, things like uh, psychology would be a, a, a popular modern example or to enforce some other system of thought alongside Scripture, where we take another sort of uh, paradigm or philosophy and also use that in Bible interpretation. Uh, the Bible, the meaning of a Bible text is always itself. The meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. The meaning isn't in something outside of itself. Uh, it is its own meaning. The meaning of a text is itself. So Moses is teaching a hermeneutics class here all at the same time. He's teaching about the art and science of Bible interpretation, which these same sort of concepts still apply to us today because they, they haven't changed. We can't reinterpret what he meant and how Moses taught hermeneutics. Chapter 13 begins into the second command. Who remembers what the, the second commandment was? Yeah, no, no idols. What's the positive of that would be worship the right God the right way. Don't worship wrong gods the wrong way, which was a potential danger for Israel when they would cross over into the land because one, they might deal with persuasive prophets. Look at the beginning of 13. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. So now think about this guy. This guy has a dream from God. This was something that would happen back then. And say, okay, maybe this is you know, new revelation from God. And he performs a sign or wonder. So this guy's persuasive, he's popular, he's powerful, and you might actually work for him. So you think about their prophets, they would have basically disciples under them. And this guy comes along, you're like, you know, this is pretty convincing. It could sound like an Elijah or Elisha sort of character, but maybe he's a Balaam and not an Elijah. He says, and this is where the Balaam sort of thing could happen, where they say, well, let us walk after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. But what do you do with that guy? He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So you see, here's a specific thing in how you live out loving God when you have a prophet who comes along and everybody, for the most part, is persuaded. It seems like a good idea to follow him, but you recognize he's actually convincing people to reinterpret or redefine God's word or to just totally forsake him, even in the name of worshiping him. It says God's doing something among you when this happens is which he's testing your love for him. He, he's testing Remember the word love, it's synonymous with choice. You know, he's testing your choosing of him and him alone. We have to remember that dreams cannot supersede covenantal laws. So how is Israel to determine if they were to follow this dream that would be had? Well, 
they would look at their Bible. You know, is this in accordance with what God has revealed? And if it isn't and it's leading us to worship another or in a different way, it's like, well, what do you do? Well, you, you kill the guy, which you're not supposed to do that today. Just remember, you're not under the law. But it's, we still have this sort of test of our love for the Lord you know, in the church. You know, there's tares in the church. There's false teachers in the church. When you read the New Testament, every epistle except Philemon addresses false teachers. So you see it, it's prominent in that, you know, one, God is shepherding his church to be able to understand that there are going to be uh, false teachers and prophets and you need to know how to discern them and I'm helping you to do that and helping you to, to know that you need to be on guard and the things that you need to be on guard about which you know, epistles that definitely very much emphasize that are Second Peter and Jude. But it's not just prophets who would potentially lead Israel astray when you pick up and Verse 6, it says, If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or your wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known. Well, if this happens, you know, what do you do with them? And it says in verse 9, But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to drive you from Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Thus all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Now you can imagine the difficulty of having to do that you know, you know this is my mom we're talking about this is this is my brother uh, this is my my best friend of my whole life and i think this this ties into jesus's statement in luke 14 26 he's, when he says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple which what he's communicating there is that you have to have a, an absolute unwavering allegiance to the lord that is above absolutely every other relationship in life so much so that it would even look like hatred towards your family, your, your closest friends, because you're so devoted at Yahweh that you're, you're willing even to suffer pain and loss in those relationships. What's being communicated here is how extreme idolatry actually is. It's not something to take lightly. Today, and under the law of Christ, you know, he's instructed us in other ways and this discipline being carried out for the body of believers, which we refer to as church discipline, which we don't stone anybody, but there's the going to our brother that we might win him. There's the two or three witnesses, leaders, judges that are Involved, if the brother's not one in that first step. And sometimes it comes to the point in which it must be told to the, the, the whole church so that they can be involved in the hopeful restoration of this sinning person. And if they're not, they're to be put out from that fellowship in hopes that they would see, I'm outside of Christ. I need to be reconciled to Christ. I need to repent. I need to be forgiven. Well, for Israel also in the application of the second commandment within their government, with them being a theocracy, they would have cities within themselves. Read about this in verses 12 to 18. It says, well, what if you have one of the cities within the massive nation of Israel and they sway from true worship. What do you do with them? Which is, you know, a situation they're going to 
get in with Jeroboam and he's going to, you know, one up the golden calf thing and bring two. And he says, what do you do with them? He says, devote them to destruction. You know, it's this idea of, again, of a, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If, if you tolerate a, a little of that, it, you either destroy it or it's going to destroy you, which, you know, uh, John Owen is famous for his Valentine card. You know, roses are red, violets are blue, be killing sin or it be killing you. It's not exactly how I put it, but you can use that in February if you like. What was at, at stake for Israel and having, you know, one city that strayed in its worship was national health. You know, their sin wouldn't just affect their city. It would affect other cities. And their national security would be on the line because they would then, all of them corporately would inherit the curses of then being given over to their enemies. So God says, if you're enticed by your enemies and you want to worship like them, I'll, I'll treat you like them. Well, what is it that they're to be doing instead of what is right in their own eyes? See us at the end of chapter 13, verse 18. It says, if you will listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, keeping all his commandments which I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of Yahweh your God. You might think of this in terms of they were to be Bible people when they are to think about, well, what does God want us to do in this situation? See, well, let's go back to the book. Uh, he's told us exactly what he wants us to do in these situations and he, he doesn't want our insight on it. Uh, he's not looking at how we feel about it, how we think about it. Uh, you think about the, you know, the struggle that might, might be with the, the straying family member that's trying to, to get you to go and worship another and you have you know, a love for them, but you're to have a greater love and devotion for Yahweh, your God. Uh, these would be difficult things to live through. Now, with the straying cities, just... Again, another reminder, you're, you're not under the law. So if you know of some idolatrous city in your nation, don't go to war with them. But we are learning here that there, there, there must be a willingness to go to extremes to destroy idolatry. You think about that when Christ came as lawgiver on the Sermon on the Mount and he preached the law of Christ. And he's said to communicate this extreme, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. You know, if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Which he, he doesn't mean to actually gouge out your eye, but he's communicating that you have to go through a certain sort of extremes. Uh, maybe a modern example, like you're, you're struggling with viewing things that you shouldn't be on a smartphone, Cut off the smartphone. Get the dumb phone so that you, you're minimizing the temptation so you can build up a strength against it. But you're going to have to do extreme sort of things in order to do that. That doesn't mean that everybody with a dumb phone is doing that, but if they aren't, they're to be commended. And you don't really lose anything in that. You can still talk to people, and you're probably saving a lot of time in your life anyways by not having the smartphone, having the dumb phone. Maybe the dumb phone's smarter can't give like an authoritative sort of statement on that for everybody, but that's for each of you to determine for yourselves. But we have to have a willingness to go to extremes to destroy idolatry as the point. Uh, this is the sort of creation logic that remains from the very beginning of creation to our present day. And to, to understand now uh, since we're not living in a theocracy with these cities, we're, we're putting to death sin, not sinners. And we understand that sin can, it has an effect on the entire community. It, it can spread. And so we care about putting to death sin in our lives, but we also care about when we see a brother or sister who's in sin because we recognize it's not just uh, affecting them. It's going to affect a lot of people. And you know when you come across that situation, there's a, there's a hesitation to enter into it because you know that it's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, they might not appreciate you doing this very good thing that should be uh, 
appreciate it. But then again, they might very much appreciate it. But what might happen doesn't change if you obey God in that circumstance or not. Uh, what you think the results might be doesn't change if a command like that is optional. Say, if you see your brother in sin, you are to go to him. And it doesn't say, but there are some exceptions when some things are just to be kept private and you're not to be poking your nose into other people's business. Uh, you, won't be, you won't read a Bible passage that says you have permission to not poke your nose into other people's business. But there's an element in which we also need to do that in appropriate ways. You know, you don't want to be the, like the, the church's primary sin sniffer, confronter sort of person. You want to make sure your heart is truly for that person. You're prepared to walk with them through something while they battle a particular temptation. Cross-reference Galatians 6. God alone is to be worshipped and he's to be worshipped as he has defined without any modifications. As we know what Jesus said, he says, no, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. There's, there's only one God. There's only one way to come to him, and that's Christ. Uh, there isn't another name under heaven by which men must be saved. But what if even an angel comes to you and gives you a gospel that's just a little bit different than the one that has been given to you in the scripture? Now, Galatians 1 says if you know, an angel does that or another person, let them be accursed. Let them go to hell for that. It says, don't tolerate stuff that's contrary to the pure gospel that you have received in the scriptures. Now, when it comes to understanding idolatry, I think we see a, a helpful example in the life of Job and a man battling with that amidst great suffering. This is in Job 31.24. We'll actually turn there together. It's going to... Job 31, 24. Job 31, 24. It says, if I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust. If I have been glad because my wealth was great and because my hand found so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon glowing in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment for I would have denied God above. You see here that what Job was recognizing is that there was something in him that could be enticed towards money and to trust in that, to idolize that. It wasn't an idol in terms of something that was carved out of stone or wood or that he necessarily physically bound before it or prayed to it. But you see, uh, idolatry can happen with things like money. Uh, it can, an idol can even just be a, a concept wrong thinking it could be a wrong sort of heart attitude it's you're living for something other than God alone you know that devotion is also going towards something else that trust is also going towards something like money where he mentions you know the sun and the moon which are big deals when you're uh, an agricultural sort of person because you're recognizing you know it's because of what's going on with that that I have food here on the planet. And so you could give the, the thanks and the praise to the sun and the moon stuff that goes on within that and miss the fact that, well, who put those two things in the sky? Well, the creator of those things. So the, the thanks is to go to the giver of those gifts and not the gifts themselves. An idol is anything that deflects an absolute devotion to Jesus Christ. You know, an idol is anything that deflects 
our devotion to Jesus alone. What are some other examples you guys can think of of things that, that can be idolatrous in our lives? Leisure. Yeah. Yeah, well, leisure, pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, it can be a distraction from ultimately finding our, our pleasure in God, which doesn't mean you need to pursue misery and never go on vacation, right? <laughs> You're to pursue finding that, that pleasure in Him, and when you do go on vacation, it's, you know, thank you, God, that, you know, I, I get to do this, and I do it in, in honor to you. Remember, uh, you know, again, to, to cross-reference, you know, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do that to, go, to the glory of God. Like, you know, eat stuff that you actually like. You're like, no, I'm a Christian. You know, I don't to eat anything that I like. My pleasure is in God alone. <laughs> well, you, you don't honor God when you do that, but you, you, you honor him when you enjoy those things with gratitude to the one who gave them to you. What are some other things you can think of that can be sources of idolatry in our hearts? Yeah, yeah, it could be family relationships. Uh, you recognize it, you know, that tension that you brought up. You know, if, if you address idolatry in somebody else's life, you might think, well, I might, I might lose them. They might stop talking to me. And so you have to determine, well, am I going to uh, obey God? Am I going to fear God or fear man, basically, is what you're dealing with in that moment. Can you think of anything that can't become idolatrous? <laughs> I should put it that way. Is there, is there anything in existence that your heart can't turn it into an idol? The list is pretty big, right? <laughs> Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, you can't you can't turn God into an idol. Yeah, yeah right right devotion to the Word of God. You, you can't turn that into an idol, but you you could turn knowing stuff about the Bible into an idol. You know, you could be growing and knowing a lot of things and not living them. Uh, you can take pride in the fact that that you know stuff and that you can talk about things, but. You're able to talk about godliness, but you're not growing in it. You're not actually living in it. And you see these things of, you know, idolatry in the heart. They can be anything, money, work, family, hobbies, home. And how, how do you discern if something has become an idol in your heart? Because a lot of times they're good things. You know, and the only person who could really detect if it's an idol is probably you and the discerning people who know you well. But how do, how do you know when something has turned into an idol and it's captured your heart and devotion or trust? Yeah, so if you're willing to quarrel with somebody over a desire you have, you know, mentioning James 4 there, it's like, well, why are you quarreling? Well, it's because you, you desire stuff that's unlawful. You're, you're coveting 
And when you're not getting it, like when other people aren't bowing down to your idol, you're trying, you try to force them to bow down to your idol. And you use the quarreling and the anger to try to do it. Joey. Yeah, money and time are big ones. I think you're you're seeing that even in Deuteronomy, but you could apply it. You know, what, what was money for Israelites? It was animals. You know, they did have you know silver and stuff like that, but uh, it was the stuff. You could you know go from money to stuff, but you could I like I'm not going to bring an animal to sacrifice. That's food. Like I'm going to eat that. You know, I didn't I didn't go to to Costco just to go take stuff to be burnt on an altar, you know? But there's something about when you recognize God's given me more than I need and I, I want to honor him the way that he's instructed. Therefore, you're using your stuff, but also time. I think that's a really key insight right there because what we're gonna get into when we get into these festivals that God gave them, the various Sabbaths and stuff, he's saying, I also define time. I define your calendar for you. Like the way you think about time is it's something that belongs to me and you're to be redeeming it in an evil age in such a way that you're using it for him. So those are, I think what you laid out there is kind of like the, the big categories. You're thinking about, you know, using our stuff for God, which is, you know, loving the Lord your God with all your might. That's the idea of all the stuff that's around you and your time. How does God want me to use my time? How many of you have sat down and pondered that or even just looked at how you actually use your time? You know, I did that as a devotional exercise once and just laid it out you know, every single hour in the day and like, what, what was I doing in those hours? I just thought, I waste a lot of time. <laughs> I spend a lot of time on me and... But there's also this element in which you're also seeing there's like that big sleep block <laughs> in there. You're like, I'm weak. Like, like, I just look at how much of my life is spent sleeping, which is a reminder that you're like, I need rest in God and I need him to give me rest. But every moment of my life should be found in him, but recognizing you know, my weakness and his strength. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you, you know, that what you're bringing out there is that word no has to do with a relational sort of knowledge. It's not just facts about something, but when they're enticed to you know, go after a God which they have not known. He said, you're going after a God with which you have never had a relationship. You also can't because it doesn't exist. Yeah, good insights. Noah. Yeah, that, that, that's a critical insight there that you're, you're bringing up on the discontentment, which is, a, you know, exposing covetousness in, in the heart. What you see, that's exactly what happened with uh, Israel. They were discontent with the food, with the water. But, you know, God put them in those situations so they could see that about themselves. They, they could learn that. You know, maybe for us, we see that in shopping around on the Amazon. Like, how many stars did this one get? 
How many reviews does that, that one have? Why is there like seven different options? This is crazy. But you become like super devoted to that thing. Like, man, I'm going to get like the best one somehow. Oh, they're all made by the same manufacturer anyway. They're all the same. Because it doesn't matter. Get the cheap one. <laughs> but you, you see, but, but then you're discontent. Or you think that you need to buy things you don't even need. You know, you're like, I didn't even think about that. But the, there's like a psyop going on through my computer to get me to buy junk. You know, they just shut it off. You know, play outside. We're going to do yard work. We don't have time for this. Yeah, Stephanie. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned there that, that prayer that you know, the Lord would show us our heart. And he does so, so gently and graciously, doesn't he? Because there's a way in which he could show it to you and just totally crush you. And like, I had no idea how <laughs> was that bad. Uh, it uh, makes me think at the, the end of Psalm 19, where it says, you know, who, who can discern his errors? It says, equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Now that's uh, what we want to have in, in our hearts as we pray that God would even acquit us of hidden faults, things we don't, just sins we don't even know that we've committed, but we'd also want him to shepherd us out of those things. But it's, it happens by meditating on his word, thinking about who he is, and j just doing that will save you from a thousand errors in life. It's not like you have to detect every possible path of idolatry your heart might go, but if you stick with the truth, you're gonna avoid thousands of them. You don't have to figure out the, the thousand things, you need to figure out the one thing which is just see, seeking to, to follow God and you'll save yourself all sorts of pain and trouble in life. Well, I'm gonna conclude with this idea that I can't remember where I heard it from. That Somebody said, well, another way that you detect an idol in your heart is you say, well, I will only be happy if, and you fill in the blank. And he says, if if you could put anything else in that blank besides Jesus is my king, then you've got an idol. Can you think about that? You say, I'll only be happy when I get this kind of food that I want. I'll only be happy when this relationship turns out this way. I'll only be happy when I can live in that place or have that job or be in this situation or have this much stuff in my bank account. We should just be able to say, I'll only be happy if Jesus is my king. If he is... I can be content in that, which comes from a heart that prioritizes seeking his kingdom and his righteousness above all else and trusting him to provide needed food and clothing so that we can be alive to be about his kingdom and righteousness. Well, let's close there and we'll pick up on part two of this next week, Lord willing. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this reminder that you are one, that we've been made one with you and to have a singular devotion to you. The privilege that it is to be redeemed by you, to know you, to have instruction from you. Pray that you would increase our skill and understanding our own hearts, that we'd be able to think a thing through according to your word, that we'd be able to walk the narrow path that you have called us to, to do so with joy, with thanksgiving, in a way that displays the goodness of your character, the goodness of your instruction. I pray that you would help us in the community of the church which you have saved us into to help one another to walk in your word, to 
walk in your ways. And we thank you also for that gift, the fellowship that we've had here, how we've been used to edify one another, how you are using us to equip us for ministry to one another and to the world that your great name might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Amen.